You are listening to a podcast from Influence Church. We hope it encourages and empowers you to make a difference in your world for the kingdom of God. For any more information, visit our website, influencechurch.co.uk. Enjoy the message. Lovely to see you all. And I'm going to do that age-old trick of once you've got sat down and just that right level of comfortable, just say, stand up and we'll pray. Um, Because, you know, it's that kind of person, isn't it, that does that. Um, Yeah, let's stand, church. Let's pray. Uh, It's always good for us to position ourselves properly before we hear the word of God. And so, yeah, let's just start praying, praying for ourselves, but praying for this word as well. Lord God, I just thank you for what you're going to do today, Lord. I just pray right now for every person who is here today, Lord, that hears this word, Lord, that you would speak to them, Lord God, that you would give them vision, Lord, you would give them purpose, you would give them joy, Lord. You would give them everything that they need for a life in you, Lord. We thank you that we can gather like this, Lord. We never take it for granted, Lord. And we just pray right now, Lord, that your spirit would move among us today. In your name, Jesus. Amen. 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 Take your seats, guys. Amazing. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Pete. I am our community manager here at Influence Church. Um, I have, I, I have to admit, I have an awesome job. Like, I actually love what I do for a living. Um, my, my job basically entails our community projects, so things like our storehouse, our food bank, things like that, our uniform bank, and all our winter warm winter scheme that you've just seen in church news as well. These are things that fall into my table of responsibility, and it's amazing to see that we are in a church, and that we are a church that doesn't stop at the doorway of the building. You know, that we are a church that doesn't just look inwards and doesn't, isn't insular in our thinking, but instead look out to a community and see a people who need God, who need Jesus, who need a relationship with God, and actually feel a purpose to impact them in some meaningful way, whether that's through a food bank parcel, whether it's through a uniform event, whether it's through a stay and play program. But we have a heart as a church for being missional in our community work. But it's great because it doesn't just stop in Richmond or any of our locations, but we actually start to see that bleed through into our young people as well. You know, seeing things like our missions program, these are things that we should be so excited for that as a church. You know, we should celebrate the fact that as a church, we have a generation of young people who say, actually, I'm not happy with just staying in my town and being a light there, but I want to go to other places and shine God's love there as well. You know, it's amazing that we have a church like that. I, I, I pray that we never take for granted, we never become complacent in the fact that we have a church that is so on fire for God that it's able to send 15 young people in a dodgy minibus to Workington for a weekend. Please pray for me before I leave today because I'm the only one on the team that can drive said bus. Um, so any breakdown will end up being my fault, won't it? Um, I'm excited to bring the word today because I, this word, I've preached it for three times elsewhere, and it'll be my fourth and fifth time today. But what's been amazing is that God's spoken differently in each time. He's given me things on my heart, and he's, he's just brought random things out of the scripture in each, each t- instance that I've preached this. And I'm excited to do the same thing again today. You know, we serve a God who is truth. We see in John 14, Jesus, uh, Jesus says to, to the disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. And it's one of those statements that you see in the Bible, and it's, it's, it's so key. It's one of those verses that you could go to just about any church. In fact, you could probably walk down the high street of Richmond while church is on and say, name a verse that you know. And it's probably one of the verses that's staple in people's understanding of, of, what, of what Jesus is, or a Bible verse that's powerful and has, has things that are important in it. But we often take that word, the truth, that Jesus says he is the truth, 
And we can, we can sometimes forget that it's there, I think. Because Jesus being truth is a fantastic thing, but it's something that we should hold on to. You know, Jesus being the truth is, is, is a guarantee in our life that is like no other. You know, to know that Jesus is the truth means that we can look at the word and we can take that as an absolute guarantee that it is a guide for our lives. To know that Jesus is the truth is, allows us to know that we serve a God who is consistently true. You know, we serve a God who isn't relative to us. We don't have a morally relative God who looks at us and goes, you know what, I'm going to be different tomorrow, and I'm going to be different today, and I'm going to be different in the future. You know, how terrifying would it be to be in relationship with a God who was fickle, that would try and trick us, that would try and slip us up? That wouldn't be a good relationship. If you have a friend who's fickle, who tries to slip you up, who tries to confuse you and baffle you, then you'd often be looking and thinking, maybe I should have a different friend. You know, if we had a God that was that, you'd be thinking, well, maybe I don't need this God. But we don't serve a God who is morally relative. We serve a morally absolute God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Who is the truth? Who is the only way? Who is the God of all gods? Who is the King of kings? And the joy in that is knowing that we as a church serve someone who has given that identity to himself is so powerful. Because what it does is it feeds down to us as well. You know, we serve a morally absolute God, and that, therefore we can take his word at face value. We can see examples in the word. We can see God speaking to people in the word and say, you know what, he's probably going to react in a similar way or the same way as he does to those people as well. When we see the New Testament, when we see people saved, when we see people drawn close to God, when we see people radically transformed by God, we can know and stand on the assurance that the same God who does that will do the same for us as well. Within this, we can actually begin to build ourselves an identity. Now, identity is one of those words, especially, I think, in the last five years, it's become a bit of a buzzword, especially among young people as a youth worker. It's one of those words and it's one of those things that we've become more and more and more aware of, that we see young people saying, you know, I have an identity and it is X. I have an identity and it's Y. I have an identity and it's this. And, and often we can look at identity and we can be fearful or trepidatious of it, you know, scared of, of, of approaching identity because actually it's, a, it's something that we feel that we can't question. But what I would say is that identity has existed in the word long before it's existed in, com in modern conversation. God identity has existed since the dawn of creation. If we read Genesis, we actually see that as much as there is a battle that takes place between the enemy, the serpent, and mankind, actually that on the surface it may be a conversation, but I would actually say that it is a war of identity that takes place in there. When we read that word, we see in Genesis 3, we see so much take place that, that, we, that we, have, we have to respond to it in some ways. We have to take a reaction to it. We'll get to it in a moment. But one of the things that that stands out to me is that identity is so powerful. You know, identity has something in us. There is something in identity that falls within each and every one of us. We all have an identity, but we all have a choice about what that identity is. You know, we can choose to be shaped by the world. We can choose to be defined by our circumstances. We can be, choose to be defined by our life and lifestyles, or we can choose to have our God identity. And we have a choice. We are, we, I've got a, a thing here written about sheep, and I'm, I'm debating whether to go into it. We're going to go into it because we've, we've looked at sheep in every other location. But um, we are not sheep before I get into it. Um, sheep, for want of a better saying, are a bit stupid. Now, when I started this off in, in Barnard Castle, I said the word sheep, and it was met with a cheer. Um, <laughs> I said it in Workington and it was stone cold silence. And I anticipate going into Bishop tonight, there'll be someone who says, what's a sheep? You know, we, we, ser we serve a broad spectrum of communities. You know, we have the agricultural society and we have the town societies and it's great. 
But Jesus, when he spoke, spoke to an agricultural society. Historians say that the, the examples that he gave, the reason you have things like the parable of the sower, the, the sheep and the goats, and things like that, is because people would get it. But I would say when Jesus describes people as sheep, there's a little bit more in it. Because sheep make mistakes, sheep are easily led, and sheep do silly things sometimes. When, when I was a teenager, I grew up on a farm, and I, don't, I wouldn't wish farming on anyone, because growing up on that, in that kind of world, you're just like, why would anyone want to work with sheep? I, I'm, not, I'm not saying anything other than that, but the, the reality was, as a teenager, my job on the farm, my summer job, among other things, was to go down into our lower pastures where there was a river um, and check on the sheep every day. I'd feed them. I'd carry a bag of, of feed down with me. And then I'd get, in, get down. And my dad's instruction was very clear. It was every day, go down, look in the river and make sure nothing's trying to drown itself. <laughs> I would say summer is about three months long. And I would say of those three months, it'd be like one or two days where there wasn't a sheep that's like deep in the water. And my job every day was to get into that river. I'd get drenched. Like, you know, it's all right when it's red hot. But then some days at the back end of summer, you'd be like, this is ridiculous. Like, why can't we just fence it off? We're a fencing contracting family. Like, you know, why can't we do this? Um, but, you know, we, we, I'd have to then lift the sheep out. And, you know, some of them would be like little shearlings. They'd be small things. They'd be terrified. They'd be drenched. Wool takes on water like nothing else. So your arms would be screaming. They'd eat this thing called watercress. Now, I don't know what it is about watercress, but it's like kryptonite to sheep. Right? They, they see watercress. They will, put, they will risk life, limb, and everything else to get into a, paddock, a grazing point of it. And what, the trouble when they eat watercress is it's got an enzyme in it. I did some research on this. It's how, this is how invested I was with it. The, it, has, um, it breaks down their cud, which is the thing that they chew on. They're a ruminating animal. And it breaks down. It basically just makes it dribble, and it stinks. Um, so you'd be lifting them out. You'd have to throw them out of this situation. And you get to the point where you're like, well... Why, why do they keep doing this? Why do sheep keep doing this? Why do they not learn? You know, but the reality is that, that they don't learn because they've got no ability to, to get that into their head. Now, I'm thankful that as much as we can look at sheep and there's maybe parables about sheep being similar to people, that that's where it ends because actually we have a responsibility in our own lives to take ownership of things. We're not sheep. We don't have to wait for the shepherd to pull us out of the river every time. Sometimes we can take ownership enough to turn around and say, actually, I'm going to change my course and my trajectory right now and step out of this situation. <laughs> Got there in the end. <laughs> there we go. That, that was a battle, wasn't it? I want to go back to that passage in Genesis. So we look at the fall of man. I said before, it's an identity battle. And it is, in, in many respects, that. It's, it's a battle of, of who is who and what is what in the kingdom. And what we see in Genesis 3, and we'll read it now, is, is, basically, is basically that. Genesis 3, it starts off with this. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other animals in the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. We'll, read, we'll keep reading through it, but firstly, I'll point out that that, that, that that was never said. You know, the, the enemy will often come into your life, and he'll tell you something that's a half-truth that's completely untrue. You know, the, the, God didn't say you could eat from any tree. There was a specific rule that was set out, and he'll generalize it to try and confuse you and try and steer you away from it. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, you must not touch it or you will surely die. You know, the, the, the reality is, is Eve's, Eve's right. You know, she said this, this whole situation. I'd point out as well that in this passage of scripture, Eve isn't named. 
you know, she's put down as the woman. Now, I'm not, that's not anything to do with sexism or anything like that, but it's a statement of fact that Eve doesn't have an identity at this point. We see as we read through the scriptures, we go further down. If you jump down to verse 20, we see her identity established. But in this moment, she is the woman. She is an unnamed entity in this narrative. The serpent turns around and says, you will not certainly die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. If the first half-truth was a distraction technique, this is the, the ultimate trick that the enemy's trying to pull. You know, firstly, I'd point out that, that Eve comes into this with the best of intentions. She's just trying to correct the, the serpent. She's trying to tell him what, what actually is the case, what is what in the garden. But actually, she may have started with the best of intentions, but the worst possible outcome takes place. And how often can that be for us as well? How often can we get into the things with the best intentions, you know, with the greatest heart, with the greatest enthusiasm behind it, but have the worst possible outcome purely because the, the, where we're at was never where we were initially meant, where we were meant to be at all. And it's the same for Eve in this moment. You know, she sees this, the, the enemy tricks her basically, you know, she tries to correct him and in the end it, get, it just all falls apart because she, she forgot who they were. If we look in Genesis 1 verse 26, I believe it is, God says, you know, we'll make mankind in our image. They were already like God. You know, they didn't need to be like God because that was what they were. They forgot what their true identity was. The woman saw that the fruit was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some of it and ate it. She gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. And the eyes were both, of both of them were opened. They realized they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The fall of man. One of the biggest events in the Bible. It's what we describe as a cosmic level event where the trajectory of mankind was changed forever. And it's one of those moments that you look at and you go, well, actually, you know, there's so much in here. But what happened, in, in all fairness was the serpent entered the garden, he was presented a choice. You know, he had Adam, someone with an identity, someone who was known, someone who God had said, you are Adam. Or he had, at this point, a nameless person, a nameless woman who had no name, who had no identity to speak of at that point. And the enemy chose to go for the woman. I'd say it has, the most, has more to do with everything, sorry, it has everything to do with the fact, I would say, that her identity was not yet established. And that is what I think the way that the enemy interacts with us is, is in the same way. If we do not have a God identity, if we do not have that over ourselves, then actually what happens is the enemy looks at us and goes, you're easy pickings, mate. You're an easy person to take out. Why? Because you don't know who you are. You don't know that you're a son of the king. You've thrown your inheritance away, so to speak. So if you've got no value behind you, then how can earth can you ever hope that there's going to be any stopping power to you as well? You know, at the end of the day, the enemy will always choose easy targets, because you can do more damage with that than you can ever do with someone who is established and rooted in the knowledge of who they are in Christ. We're not sheep. We have a responsibility to start speaking this over ourselves, though. You know, we have, for some of us, like as Richard said before, you know, getting into worship every day will transform your life. And it's incredible and it's amazing when we do that. But we have to start declaring our identity over ourselves every day as well. You know, we have to be people who, who root ourselves in our belief, who stand firm in what we are. A few years ago, and I'm going back maybe 12 years or so ago, there was an Apple's App Store advert that used to come up on the TV. It used to be on, especially about evening times on ITV, I think it was. Um, I remember because I was watching, you'd watch Heartbeat and it'd come on during that time. <laughs> that old classic. Um, but it would come up and it would be literally this saying, there's an app for that. Now, as a teenager, 
I love that because you could take the mick out of it. I didn't even know what a smartphone was, but you'd be like, there's an app for that. You want to go feed the sheep down the bottom, Dad? There's an app for that. There wasn't. But the, the point stood, you know, anything you could feasibly do on a smartphone, there was an app for. And that's what they were trying to sell. That's how they were trying to sell the apps, or that's how they're trying to sell smartphones. Because like, you, it makes your life so much more convenient. For us, we can flip this as Christians on its head. And we can say, you know, there's a verse for that. There's a verse for that situation you're walking through. There's a parable in the Bible that exists for that time that you're struggling, that choice that you're facing. There's an example of someone else walking through it. The book, the word is the book of life. It's the book for life as well. And sometimes we have to just start picking verses out and declaring them over ourselves. You know, when you feel valueless, get things like 1 Peter 2 verse 9. You're a God's chosen treasure, priests and kings of a spiritual nation. Hebrews 6.19, for when you need hope, we have this hope that is an anchor for our soul. You know, Deuteronomy 31 verse 6, for when you need to know God is with you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them, for the Lord God goes with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. It is so important that we get verses like this and put them into our narrative of, of, dis, of discussion over ourselves. Because the flip side is that we let the world define who we are. We let the enemy define who we are. And when we let him do that, it's Peter, the guy who gets anxious when things get too stressful. Peter who gets too frustrated when, when things don't go the right way. Peter who gets wound up or whatever it is. We can be people that then just start saying, well, that's me. That's who I am. That's not who God says you are. And it's so vital that we as people grasp that. That we grasp our identity in God. Because our identity in God is who you are. It's who God destined you to be. It's who God designed you to be. The world will want you to believe otherwise. The world will want to distract you from who you are. Because when the world can distract you from who you are, then you're not taking ground for the kingdom. You're an easy target. You can be picked off quickly. And nothing, nothing fruitful can come of us. But when we stand firm in our knowledge, that's when things begin to change. I want to look at three people today who have an identity in God. And they maybe either lost it, forgot it, or never even had it. But I want to also look at how God responds to people. Because if we agree that we serve a morally absolute God who, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever, then we can understand that God's response to people in the word can be the response that we can expect in our lives as well. So that can give us an even greater level of confidence to walk into life and say, actually, you know what? God's going to be this for me because he is this in his very nature and character. I've given them all names because actually I think, you know, it's nicer when you give someone a bit of an identity around what they've done. It's just, it's daft. But the first one is Adam the forgetful. Um, the ultimate truth is, though, about Adam and Eve is that they forgot their identity. You know, we saw in Genesis 1.26, you're made in the image of God. Yet they go from Genesis 1.26 to Genesis 3 verse 7, you know, two chapters. I mean, in the time, we, the time frame could be much faster than, it's not, you know, it's not the time it takes for you to flick through it. It's, you know, it's the narrative of their existence. And so, you know, in a short space of time, though, they go from being people made in the image of God to people who've forgotten their entire identity. And you know, how easy is it for us to be the same? You know, they forgot that they were made in the image of God. And we can forget that we are God's children. We can forget that God chose us. We can forget that we're priests of a spiritual nation. We can forget that, that God is with us so quickly. And I'll throw my hand up and be counted within this, that when things get hard, you know, when the A66 is chocker with traffic... And then someone cuts you in. I soon forget that I'm a son of the king because the words that come out of me are not what they should be. I'll hold my hands up. You know, road rage is a, is a sin. And I'll say, I'm, I'm, I'm to be counted in that. And I know some of you are as well because I've been on the other end of you guys. So, you know, <laughs> let's just throw that out there. You know, but that's the thing. You know, we can so quickly forget who we are. 
and who God has called us to be. That actually, we can look at Adam and Eve and go, what a pair of numpties, but actually, we do the same thing every day. I guarantee if you actually look closely through the lens of your life and say, well, where do I forget who, God, who God's called me to be? There will be times. There is for all of us. But God's response is more important than what we do. Because if it was about all of our failings, then the cross doesn't matter. But actually, God's response is so much more important. Genesis 3 verse 8, we see that God comes down in the cool of the, in the garden. It says, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden of the cool of the day. They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to them and said, where are you? Before we get into it, I want to know, I want to point out three things that we know about God as fact. We know that God's all-knowing. So he didn't have to come into the garden and look for them because he knew where they were. He also knows what they've done. So we know that what God's doing here isn't about him discovering them, but actually about him responding to them. He's all powerful as well, God is. He's omnipotent. And what that means is that he could have stopped this, and that's a preach for another day. He could have changed this whole thing, and there's a whole concept of free will and different things like that that can come into play there, but we won't get into that. But the final thing we know about God is that he's omnibenevolent. And omnibenevolent means that he's all loving. And I would say that God coming into the garden in the cool of the day and looking for Adam and Eve has more to do with his infinite benevolence and his infinite love for them than it has ever to do with his power, his knowledge, his authority. Because actually what God's doing here is he's showing love. He could have responded to them by literally as soon as they bit into that fruit, striking them down with lightning. He could have hit reset on the whole thing. He's a God powerful enough to do so. He could have done a new, an innumerable amount of different things. But actually what God chose to do was to step down into the garden and seek them out. And we forget our identity in God. He does the same thing. He doesn't look at us and go, well, you're no longer useful. Let's cast you off to the rubbish pit. Instead, he looks at you and goes, you know what? I'm going to meet you where you're at. I'm going to find you. I'm going to come seek you out. It's the same thing. Second person I want to look at is Saul, the unknowing. This is Saul of Tarsus. He was born into the Jewish tradition at the time. And he was born into a, a culture that really were not keen on the idea of these Christians that were coming up. The rabbi, he was under, taught them and taught him to persecute them, gave him the authority to go out and find them, and, and was really ordained him to be a hunter of Christians. He, Saul didn't know any better. But Saul, Saul was a piece of work when we look at what he did. You know, Paul, Saul did some pretty terrible things. It says he approved of the stoning of Stephen and that he had a zeal, a real passion for imprisoning Christians. You know, I'm passionate about my job, but I, just, I dread to think the type of person that it is that's passionate about throwing people in prison and going, you know what, I'm going to throw away the key and you're going to suffer. I imagine the early church, the church we see in Acts, looked upon Saul and probably had prayer meetings, let's be honest, that were like, you know what, God, take him out. Get him out of our, of our, of our way. You know, he's holding up the church. But God looks at Saul and he doesn't say that about him. You know, he looks at Saul and it says in Scripture that he sees Saul and he says that he is my chosen vessel in this next age. That God chose Saul and we see on the Damascus Road, we see a man who was persecuting Christians, who was passionately going about his business of, of hurting God's people, transformed in a moment. And he meets Jesus, Jesus comes down, Jesus seeks him out, blinds him on the Damascus Road and transforms him in the process as well. You know, we can look at Saul and we can, we can claim that his ignorance is, is, is his green card, his get-out-of-jail-free card, whatever we want to say. But, but in all fairness, we do much worse, much less than Saul. We're nowhere, we never become as bad as Saul, and yet we'll rule ourselves out way more than he was ever ruled out. 
Saul's transformation led to Saul writing uh, about half of the New Testament. Saul's transformation really was the, the starting block of the, of the early church. You know, you take Saul out of the equation, is the church the same today? Would we have a church here? The answer is possibly not no. You know, Saul was, was that instrumental in the process. Yet, you know, if Saul had looked and, got, and, and been racked up with the guilt of what he'd walked through and what he'd done in the past and said, you know what, my punishment is to, is to isolate myself, to never, ever speak to anyone, is to never preach this again, but to know that Jesus forgives me and I'm just going to retire myself to my shame and my pity and my guilt. We'd have not had that. We, we wouldn't have had him. We wouldn't have had the, the word that we hear from him. We wouldn't have had the, the amazing churches that we see. But Saul knew that he was transformed and was forgiven by God. And we need that as well. We need to recognize that no matter where you end up, no matter how far you fall, no matter how big the mistake you make in your life, that, that God looks at you and says, you are still my chosen instrument in your workplace. That you are still my chosen instrument in your family. That you are still my chosen instrument in this world. And that you are actually forgiven by God, not just to, to retire to your shame, but to actually step into all of what God has promised for you final one I want to look at is the prodigal son. And I've worded him as the complacent one. Now, the prodigal son is, it isn't a real person. He is an example that Jesus uses to tell a story. And that story is really about a son who comes away from the father. The father in this story is listed, is meant to be God. And the son is meant to be someone who takes that, 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 that inheritance, that goodness that God has got for him and treats it with utter contempt. What we see is the prodigal demand his inheritance early. You know, even by today's standards, saying to someone, you know, I want my, if you turn out to your parents and say, I want my inheritance now, that's, that's considered a pretty bad thing to do. In those times, it was, it was really seen as stamping on the legacy of your father. It was considered to be, you know, people would have heard Jesus say that and gone, oh, he's not a nice piece of work. We don't, oh, I, want, I wouldn't want to be like him. They'd repulsed from the idea of it because it was, it was truly an ultimately dishonoring thing to do to your father. And we see the son, he takes his inheritance, his father is loving and gives him it, and he goes off and lives a life of wild living. Now for me, wild living could probably be staying up past 10 o'clock some nights. Um, I, don't, I don't think that's quite what he meant. Now, you know, it's, these, there's not a lot of heating nowadays, you know, you've got, it's the warmest place, isn't it, you know? Um, but you know, you know he, he went off and lived a, a truly wild life. And it says that it all went wrong. There was a famine, and he ended up being a pig farmer. Uh, he ended up desiring to eat the pods that the pigs were eating. He ended up being the lowest of the lowest of the low. And it was at that point he realized where he'd ended up. But for him, when you read the story of the prodigal, I can't help but wonder, you know, how does it, how, where does it become the case that you look at your life and you look at your inheritance, that you look at your father's house and treat it with such contempt? That you become so complacent in it that you look at it and go, you know what, I want my own way now. But we can all be guilty of this sometimes. We can sometimes come into God's house and we can look at it not as a house of miracles, as that song says, but as a house of place to complain in. You know, we can look at it as a place where we get frustrated at certain things and we get annoyed and we begin to think, well, actually, you know what, I'd be better off on my own. I'd be better off not doing this, not, not pursuing God in my life, not wanting him in my heart, not wanting him here because I'm so frustrated because I'm so content with things. And we can sometimes get ourselves locked in to that idea. We've all heard the saying, familiarity breeds contempt. I truly believe that it does. And it's probably one of the most dangerous things in a Christian's life 
That when we become over-familiar with the gospel, when we become over-familiar with what God wants to do in our lives, that actually we become contempt with what God's doing. That we can actually begin to forget that the gospel should never be a story that we look at and roll our eyes at. It should be a story we look at, it sets our hearts on fire. It should be something that we get passionate about. But we get complacent. Complacency is dangerous. It's one of those things that we can all end up being and we can, it can destroy our relationship with God. But God doesn't want that to be the case. And no matter how complacent, no matter how familiar, no matter how desensitized to the word of God and to the power of God we've got, God still wants to meet us. You see, God's response to these three is identical, to the prodigal, to Saul, and to Adam. Whether it's complacency, whether it's genuine ignorance, whether it's forgetting your, your true identity in God, God's response is the same. And I want to look at the response in the prodigal, because Luke 15, it says this, that he got up and went to his father. This is after he's got to the lowest of the lowest of the low. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, bring a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he is found. So they began to celebrate. Church, when we are a long way off, when we decide, actually, do you know what? No matter how far down I end up in this situation, and you actually start to turn. God looks at you and runs towards you. He'll meet you at that point. But what it requires is us to accept that we've gone a long way off. You see, with these, with these three, what we see is that there needs to be a moment where God can encounter. Now, God will set that up for you, but it's still on you to, to communicate with God. It's still on you to choose to reach out to him as well. More often than not, we let those kind of moments pass us by. We, we look at them and we go, you know what? I'm all right. I can make it by myself. I can carry on like this without actually looking around and thinking, when did it ever get this bad? You know, we, we end up being in a situation where, in life where we, we end up just thinking, well, you know what? It would be better just to be a servant in my father's house. But God doesn't call you to be servants. He doesn't call you to be a slave in his house. He calls you to be a son and daughter of the living God. He calls you to be kings and priests of a royal nation. You know, we have to choose to accept that identity. Church, why don't you stand with me right now? We're going to worship in a moment. We see in the word, it says that there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one person who repents than the 99 who do not need to. That's in, that's in Luke, that's in the Gospels. And, and we know that when we choose to, to turn to God and say, do you know what, God, I'm a long way off from you right now, that he comes to us. So we can have a moment with God, we can encounter God in that moment. So church, as we, as we worship right now, I want to just create some space for each and every one of us, because this is unique to each and every one of us. For some of us, we've forgotten our identity in God. For some of us, we've never known God. And for some of us, we've become so complacent that we've forgotten the power that God has in our lives. So for each one of us, this is a unique moment, but for each one of us, I just want us right now, as we worship, to just begin to say, God, I'm here. I just want to, God, I just, I receive you. God, I let you back into my life. I choose you. I make a decision to, to follow you. I, I choose your power and your authority in my life.
So come on, church, we're going to worship right now. And if that's you, I, I just want you to start raising your hands. Just, just surrender it to God. Just begin to say, God, I, I choose no longer to be familiar with you. God, I choose that you are the way, the truth, and the life for me. God, I choose you. God, I'm sorry for the times that I've forgotten who you are in my life. But God, I thank you that you chose me. Come on, church, let's worship. Let's begin to just feel God's presence in our lives. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Influence Church. For any more information, visit our website, influencechurch.co.uk. Influence Church, empowering you to make a difference in your world for the kingdom of God.